Hello, and welcome to the Canine Conversations podcast, where we're positively obsessed with dog behavior. My name is Ursa Akri, and I'm the co-owner of Canis Major Dog Training in Denver, where we've recently opened our new training and behavior center. I'm here today with Kayla Fratt, owner of Journey Dog Training, to talk about a case that she worked through in early 2018 on dog-cat introductions. So Kayla, tell us a little bit about this dog. Yeah, so um, in this home, we have three pets and two people. So there's Copper, who is a two-year-old neutered male Yorkshire Terrier. And then the family also owns Checkers, who's a nine-year-old, just short-haired cat. Um, And Copper and Checkers generally get along really, really well. Um, And then the family just brought home Bella, a female Yorkshire Terrier, who I think was also about two years old. Bella is spayed and came from a rescue. And then the humans in the home, we've got two two women who I think are in their 50s or 60s. Okay, so why did they reach out to you? So pretty much as soon as the owners brought Bella home, the New Yorkie, they realized that she was not going to be as easy as Copper. Copper had always been just a really happy-go-lucky you know, just one of those puppies that they never really did much training, but he was always pretty awesome. Um, They didn't know much about Bella's original history, but when they went and picked her up from the rescue, I think they said that she was like hiding in the back of the kennel and they had to use a towel to, to wrap her to prevent her from biting and then pull her out. And I think she peed on them and it was, it was pretty rough, but they, they were really dedicated to rescuing this little dog who was coming out of a rough place. And, um, Bella bonded with them pretty easily right after that, but then when they were in a group obedience class with a really excellent local Denver trainer, um, they actually ended up getting asked to leave that obedience class because Bella was pretty much constantly barking and lunging at people and or hiding behind her owners um, around dogs and people. But all of that actually wasn't like the main reason they called me. The main reason they called me um, was because Bella was chasing and barking at the cat checkers incessantly. incessantly, And that was just a, a really big problem for them. They had a setup where they had put the cat in their finished basement and put a couple baby gates up to keep them separate. Um, but they checkers was a pretty social cat, and they really wanted to be able to get him integrated back upstairs again as quickly as possible. Um, And the reason that they came to me was because I do quite a bit with both dogs and cats because their original trainer from that group obedience class absolutely could have worked with them on all of the barking and lunging towards other dogs and people. But that wasn't their main top line issue right away. Mm -hmm. So um, had they done any training in the past? Yeah, so they had done some clicker training in the past with Copper. Um, They'd gone through those same group obedience classes. And they were already doing some clicker training with uh, Bella as well, but didn't really know. They felt comfortable doing some clicker training to teach things like hand targets and sit and down. But they didn't really know how to use those hand uh, to use clicker training to uh, deal with something more like an actual behavior problem. Okay, got it. Yeah, and definite difference between like, you know, I talk to people a lot about there's a difference between teaching new obedience type behaviors and solving a a behavior problem. So I think a lot of people conflate the two, but they're different approaches for sure. Um, So what was your initial thought about what was going on? So, yeah, it really just the first thing that I was hearing was this sounded like a very scared, stressed out little dog. 
um, who was also <laughs> unfortunately making her owners and their cat pretty stressed out as well. Um, I was definitely excited that the owners had already started working on some clicker training and they were doing a really good job of separating the animals. They weren't, um, I think sometimes when we talk to people who have dog cat intro problems, they will just kind of leave the animals together and assume that they're going to figure it out. Um, or people sometimes go on the other end of the spectrum where, you know, the dog chases the cat and they assume it's never going to work out and they just give up and they give up one of the animals or they just separate their house forever. And I was excited that they were doing a good job of keeping everyone safe right now, but they also were really um, motivated to work towards getting everyone to share the house peacefully together. Awesome. Um, okay. Yeah. And the last thing that I, I loved about these guys is they were so focused on the um, not just the safety of their cat checkers, but also his emotional well-being because he's such a social cat. And I really just appreciate that they were they were taking that into account um, and they were really, really concerned about that as well as just, you know, ease of not having baby gates all over their house. Yeah, it's always great when you get a client who's being really proactive about the problem and, you know, before it gets really out of hand or before they're at their la on their last nerve, um, they realize that they need to do something to uh, to start solving it. So Absolutely. Yeah, they were, they were calling me before they were at their wit's end, and that's always great. <laughs> that's a good thing. <laughs> All right. Well, so what did you do to prepare for the first consult? So one of the first things I do whenever I'm going to be working with cats is I bring a whole bunch of different cat treats so that we can work with checkers a little bit. Um, and that's important because a lot of people don't have cat treats on hand or they might not have cat treats that are um, tasty enough for their cat to engage in training. Um, so like some cats will absolutely engage in training in exchange for some of those greeny type um, chewy treats or temptations. But a lot of others you need to do things like have meat flavored baby food or um, bonito flakes and just other different treats that are going to be a little bit more enticing for the cat. So that's the first thing I did. Um, and then I also went back and forth with the owners a little bit about how, how to best introduce me to Bella, because based on Bella's history, it wasn't like I was just going to be able to walk in there and start tackling the cat issue right away. I was going to have to figure out how to get Bella um, to at least tolerate me being in the house because I didn't want my presence to add a whole bunch of extra stress. Mm, yeah, that's a good point. You know, sometimes you're not able to get to sort of the core or the highest priority problem right away because you have other things in your way that have to be addressed first. Absolutely. <laughs> so yeah, so and true the plan... with fearful dogs. <laughs> mm -hmm. Yeah, and the plan that we came up with was essentially they were going to have Bella on a leash. And because Bella had, um, she was barking and lunging, but she had never snapped or growled or really tried to do anything that was closer to forward aggression. I wasn't that worried about needing to have her on a muzzle or behind a baby gate, also partially because of her size. So we just had her on a leash and a harness, and um, we met on the front steps of their house. And because they said taking Bella outside actually often made her worse, because as soon as she was outside, she was already freaked out. Um, and what I told them that we were going to do is I was going to toss treats behind Bella. And I also warned them that it was likely that we were going to put Bella away um, for a good chunk of that first consult so that they had a space ready. They had some Kong stuffed and they they knew that they needed to be able to have a place where they could just put Bella so that we could talk in peace. <laughs> so let's hear about how that initial consult went. 
Yeah, thanks, Ursa. So as I said, what I asked the owners to do was to have Bella on a leash and a harness and then just greet me kind of near the front porch. Because as we said, taking Bella outside often just added a lot of extra stress for her. She just was already freaked out essentially as soon as she was outdoors. So um, pretty much as soon as Bella could see me, she was barking and lunging. Um, And on one hand, she's just this little little bitty Yorkie and it's easy to kind of brush it off as like small dogs, whatever. But on the other hand, it really sucks as a trainer to feel like you are being scary and stressful for your dogs. So I tossed a bunch of treats to Bella. And what I was doing is um, we call it treat and retreat or retreat and treat. I don't I call it treat and retreat, but I've heard both. Um, and that's essentially treat and retreat. <laughs> treat and retreat. It sounds better to me. I don't know. Um, yeah. Don't get mad at me, uh, people of the internet who prefer retreat and retreat. (laughs) (laughs) And basically what that is, is that's lobbing treats over the head of the dog um, behind the dog so that the dog is realizing that treats are coming from you, but the dog is actually going away from you to go get those treats. Um, And that helps do a couple different things. But one of the biggest is it keeps the dog further away from you while still giving the dog treats. And because distance or being closer to you is often going to be more stressful for aggressive or fearful dogs. Um, it really helps. It helps everyone feel better. Um, so yeah, this is one of those things that I, you know, I hope replaces sort of the old um, <laughs> fallback of having someone put a treat in their hand and lure the fearful dog over to eat it out of their hand. Absolutely. Um, yeah, and, and I preach a lot to my clients with fearful dogs about that because it's so scary for the dog to have to like creep up to the thing that's terrifying them and then snatch the food. And then what happens is they eat the food and then the good thing is gone, but the scary thing is still there and they run away as fast as they can. And like mm-hmm. it's n- not a positive interaction for the, the fearful dog. So treat and retreat is definitely a huge improvement on that that interaction yeah. and that sort of style. Yeah, so I've been listening to Fantastic Beasts and Where to Find Them. Um, lately. And um, I think a good example of this would be if we were meeting Aragog, Hagrid's giant spider um, in the Forbidden (laughs) Forest, I would much rather have Aragog toss giant chocolate chip cookies to me that are behind (laughs) me so I can actually back away from him to go get those (laughs) rather than have him have a plate of chocolate chip cookies under his weird hairy (laughs) tentacle legs and make me come up and eat the chocolate chip cookies. It just feels like a trap. It just it feels does. like a trap. It <laughs> totally does. And I would not be surprised if Aragog ate you if you were in that situation. <laughs> and I think scared dogs feel the exact same way. It's a trap. Like, I really want that food, but I'm taking a risk. <laughs> yeah. And it doesn't and make thing, you feel better. Um, no, the last uh, thing we not want is well. for them to feel like it's a risk. So, yeah. Awesome. All right. So um, what else? What happened then? So we did a little bit of talking about how we could help um, use that treat and retreat with guests to help Bella feel a little bit more comfortable with guests as well as people and dogs out on the street. Um, I also kind of walked the owners through some of the things I was doing with my body language that were hopefully helping diffuse the situation a little bit for Bella. So one of the things that I always do when I'm approaching um, fearful dogs, and I know this is not just me, I've learned this from people who are much smarter than I am, um, is to kind of keep your back or your side to the dog. Um, if you can, crouch or kneel. You don't want to sit, be just in case um, you've got a bigger dog or a dog that might aggress. You want to be able to stand up quickly if you need to. Um, 
and avoiding eye contact. And there's all these different things that you can do with your body language to help tell the dog that you're not a threat versus walking directly towards the dog, making eye contact, staring at the dog, um, lure, luring, um, looming over the dog, all of that stuff um, that we do without thinking. And a lot of our, our friendly, socially savvy dogs don't mind that at all. But for a fearful dog, all of those make a situation worse. So I kind of walked them through what I was doing and why I was doing it and how they could use that to help coach. They had an adult daughter that they did want to eventually be able to have Bella around. Um, and they were they were actually pretty OK with the idea that Bella might not be um, all that social with other people. They didn't care that much about that, but they did want Bella to be OK with their adult daughter. Um, so after a couple minutes of that, we put Bella away so that we could actually talk about Bella and checkers, because as I said, that was the main reason that I was there. Um, and what we did is we put Bella in a back room with a stuffed Kong and we actually put Copper back there as well with her because that helped keep, um, keep her happier. Um, and then they gave me a tour of the house and helped me kind of understand what was going on more in depth. So as we said, they already had some really good management set up, so we didn't have to do much there. And what I mean by management is they already had a setup going where the dog and the cat were not stressing each other out constantly. Um, and how they had done that is they had... Um, they had a finished basement with a guest bedroom and that was already, I think where the cat's litter box had been. So the cat was already pretty used to hanging out down there. Um, and they had two baby gates. So one at the bottom to keep checkers, the cat from coming up the stairs. And then one at the top that kept Bella from going down the stairs. So that really helped them. Um, you know, they were, I don't know, 15 feet away from each other rather than just on opposite sides of that baby gate. Gave them a little bit of a space bubble. Exactly. So then we talked a little bit about a couple different things. And one of the big exercises that I almost always start out with, and if I've got a fearful or reactive dog, is the look at that game. And what we actually did is we brought Copper out again, and we practiced this game using Copper so that they could get their mechanics down and learn how to teach the game to a dog without... Um, doing it kind of live with fire, uh, meeting Bella. Um, you know, it's kind of like pilots learning how to simulate flying um, inside yeah. of a simulator um, first. So, um, Ursa, I know you're super familiar with the look at that game. Can you, uh, can you tell us a little bit about how you teach that and what it looks like? Yeah, we actually use, I, I tend to favor a sort of a version of it called Engage, Disengage. And the concept behind it is <clears throat> if you have a dog who uh, is triggered by something, either, you know, in a fearful way or in a reactive way or even in an excited way, um, you're teaching them to look at it calmly and rewarding them for looking at it calmly. So you'll um, present the trigger at a distance or at an intensity where they can notice it, but not have their full-blown whatever reaction that they have that's problematic. And you mark either with a clicker or with a marker word the moment they look at it and then um, follow that with a treat. And um, the goal is to get to the point where the dog can routinely and, and repeatedly look at the trigger in a calm manner without reacting, without either you know being overly fearful or barking, lunging, or whatever it is that they do. Um, and then the next step is you raise criteria a little bit by waiting when they, <clears throat> excuse me, I'm working through a cold here, so I'm a little a little congested. Um, <laughs> um, you wait, uh, you raise the criteria, 
So they look at the trigger and then rather than marking right at that moment, you wait a second and see if they'll actually disengage and look back at you. And that's when you mark. And I actually do. I saw Emma Parsons. um, I think it was Emma Parsons. Gosh, I hope I'm giving credit to the right trainer. (laughs) I saw Emma Parsons do a workshop on sort of like updates to click to calm. And I feel like she was one of the trainers that helped popularize the look at that back in like the, you know, early mid 2000s. And she has started doing differential reinforcement where looking at the trigger gets one treat, looking away from the trigger gets back to the uh, the handler gets three or four or five treats. And so the dog learns, yeah. And I have incorporated that. I've probably heard her say that maybe a year or two ago. And I've incorporated that into my practice with engage, disengage and notice a big difference. Dogs Mm -hmm. definitely are like, wow, this pays way better. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, That's really cool. So the goal of it is to help the dog understand like, Hey, look, you can notice the trigger and it doesn't have to be an ordeal. Like it's, you're going to be paid for noticing and displaying calm, appropriate behavior in the presence of the trigger. Um, I don't tend to put it on cue. I know the sort of original look at that game puts it on cue so you can say, oh, hey, look at that. So you can kind of get a step ahead of the dog noticing the trigger and reacting and turn it into like a game instead of a trigger for them to be reactive. But I tend to capture it instead. So if the dog is looking at anything in the environment that might be a problem, I'll go, oh, hey, thanks for checking that out and and reward them for that. But it's counter to sort of an old style of training, which forbids the dog from looking at a a problematic trigger where, you know, you either correct them for doing so or force them to look back at you or, you know, and and it's it's like, you know, I guess the you know, I guess the approach was if they can't see it, it's not going to be a problem. <laughs> but to, right. to go back to your example, if you're afraid of spiders or a certain giant spider <laughs> and somebody doesn't allow you to look at them and doesn't allow you to see where the spider is in the room and forces you to keep your eyes on them, that's not going to make you feel any less anxious about the spider. No, so, not at all. And even if they were, you know, if if they were like, forcing me to look at them. And even if they're shoving cookies in my face, I probably would still be feeling pretty nervous. And it might work eventually, but I th- what would work a lot better is if every time I glanced over at the thing that's terrifying me, um, I got <laughs> rewarded for that. So yeah, well, and that's and exactly what we did. It still doesn't really teach the dog what to do when they do look at the trigger is, I think, one of the main, I mean, obviously, the emotional comfort of the dog is is paramount, but um, you're still not teaching the dog what they should do when they do look at the trigger, because eventually they're mm-hmm. going to put eyes on another dog or on whatever the, the scary thing is. How do they, if they've never been allowed to look at it, how are they going to know what to do and how to behave? Right. That's so definitely one of the problems with that kind of forced watch behavior. Yeah, I don't see how it sets the dog up to be successful going forward. Mm-hmm. So. Yeah. Versus the look at that with, cause you get that nice head bounce where they look at the thing, they notice the thing and then they're like, Oh wait, Hey, where's my cookie? Yeah. Um, and they're voluntarily checking in with you, mm-hmm. which means that you don't have to have the responsibility of saying like, Hey, 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 Hey dog. Hey, look at me. Hey, can you <laughs> still look at me? Hey, how about now? You know, it's, it's when the, when your dog feels the responsibility to do that, it takes a lot of, you know, a lot of work off of your plate as well um, and keeps them engaged voluntarily, which I Absolutely. love in training. 
Yeah, yeah. So. We love and we love seeing them making that choice and having the control over the situation. Um, and that's one of the things that look at that gets. <clears throat> so in this case, Bella may or may not have been afraid of Checkers the cat. Um, I can't ask her. Um, she certainly wasn't looking like a dog that wanted to chase the cat to kill it and eat it. Um, we weren't <laughs> seeing those like quiet predatory like behaviors. It looked more like a display that was probably because she was scared of the cat and she wanted the cat to go away. Well, and that was um, going to be my next mm-hmm. question. Um, you know, do, would you, do you treat it differently if it's fear versus aggression, which I know those are often, you know, one in the same or uh, predatory behavior? Like, would you have done things differently based on that, uh, on a, a tentative diagnosis or? I think yes and no. I think when I'm really concerned about predatory behavior, I am a lot more cautious, not just with our plan, but also with expectations because the consequences are so high versus in this in the case of especially Bella and Checkers, because Bella was so much smaller, she was, I think, smaller than Checkers in weight because he was oh a pretty gosh. big, he was, a, he was a big tabby <laughs> cat and she was a very little Yorkie. Um, I, I have a feeling that if all of their management had fallen apart and those baby gets had fallen down, um, I don't think either of the animals would have gotten that seriously hurt. Partially because of the size, but also partially because Bella did not seem like, I mean, we've all seen those little tiny Jack Russells that um, could certainly take on a cat, even though they're not that much bigger than a Yorkie. Um, Right. But there's a difference in that intent. Um, So in some ways it does change things because if I've got, um, you know, we see this a lot with like sight hounds or northern breeds. So, you know, our greyhounds and our huskies, and we're really concerned about them actually really wanting to catch something, shake it, kill it, and potentially even eat it. Um, those dogs are probably going to be a, l- a little bit more determined and the consequences of something slipping up are higher. Um, but as far as the nuts and bolts of training, the, it doesn't change the recipe dramatically for me. Um, would you say mm-hmm. the same, Ursa? Yeah, I would agree. I mean, I think that, um, <clears throat> you know, like you said, because we can't ask the dogs what they're thinking or feeling, we have to, you know, use what we know about body language to make our best guess. And I think that in some cases, if it's predatory behavior, we can talk about some other outlets for that and some impulse control exercises and that sort of thing. But I agree the the new behaviors that we're installing are going to be really similar, it, whether it's fear aggression or whether it's um, predatory behavior. So yeah, I would agree. And yeah, I think management concerns for sure, because I know a lot of fear aggressive dogs just want to increase distance. Exactly. I think if if Checkers had backed off, (laughs) you know, or if and when Checkers backed off, I think Bella would back off. And that's what we saw around the baby gates um, is if Checkers walked over and she came over and started screaming at him, he would just kind of like he was a very cool cat. He would just kind of like put his tail up and walk away. He's just like, whatever. Oh, my God. What my neighbors? My neighbors are the worst. Um, And Bella would stop. Versus, um, I think when I've seen dogs that are much more interested in actually killing and eating something, and I had this happen a couple times when I had a fair, I had a parrot and some mm-hmm. foster dogs, and I did have some foster dogs um, that we we Way ended up too not interested. Keep- 
<laughs> yeah, we we did not keep those foster dogs for very long because I was too nervous about something happening with my parrot. And what I saw with those dogs um, versus we did have some dogs that were actually scared of the parrot um, is if we put the parrot in a cage in another room, they would stand guard by that door and they would wait wow. and they would stare <laughs> and they would listen. And their body language was very different. They were much more still. Um or kind of slinky and they were very smooth and efficient and quiet in their movements and they looked much more like they were trying to sneak up on something so they could catch it and kill it um, <laughs> versus you know bella was doing everything she could to be as scary as possible to this cat um she, yeah and there are certainly times where that fear best aggression could still tip over into something that's really dangerous um but we've We've gone off the deep end. That could be a whole other <laughs> podcast on its own. And, you know, um, it should be because um, something that I've been reading and hearing a lot lately is the idea that um, that pr- prey drive isn't as big a deal as we previously thought. So that's something we should ooh, uh, maybe yeah. maybe look into in a future uh, future episode. So, okay, yeah, we should so, add that to our list. <laughs> so you had um, on opposite sides of the baby gate. You were playing the look at that game. Mm-hmm. Um, what else? What other things were you doing with them? So the other thing that we did is we set it up so that meal times for all the animals got synced up, and the animals were going to be fed on opposite ends of the baby gate um, twice a day when they were doing meal times. And they had been, I think, free feeding checkers, so they had to switch him to eating at meal times, which can be hard for some cat owners. Oh no. Um, <laughs> The and injustice. some dog owners. <laughs> I know. Yes. Um, but I've actually been reading a bunch about um, diabetes in cats and how free feeding can actually contribute to that because their bodies aren't made to have constant small meals. Um, but that's a whole other thing. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Really interesting. Um, I was digging up some stuff for a client who was trying to convince her boyfriend that the cat should be fed meals instead of um, <laughs> free fed. Free feed. Yeah. Yeah. All interesting right. stuff. Anyway. Um, and what that does is... That set us up a time where once, well, twice a day, we were putting the animals on either side of just a single baby gate. Um, and we didn't have a heavy towel over the baby gate at first so that they, we could modulate how much they could see of each other. And then we would just feed them. And what that was doing is that was kind of helping them associate food with each other. Um, and we did start originally with um, Bella and Bella was like three feet back from the baby gate and the baby gate had the towel over it. And then um, Checkers was, I think, two stairs down. And so they could see each other. They knew each other were there. Um, and then the other thing we talked about doing was um, some scent swapping and space swapping. Because our animals are so much more focused on scent than we are. It's something that's easy to forget about. Um, but what we did is there were some plans for Copper to go downstairs and hang out with Checkers um, because Copper had also started joining in with Bella's barking occasionally and they were concerned that Copper's relationship with Checkers might deteriorate. So we gave them some time together every day. And then we um, swapped their spaces occasionally. So the the owners had a TV downstairs and I asked them for a couple hours a day to take um, Bella and or Copper downstairs and put checkers upstairs so that the animals could swap spaces and a lot of times these two women one of them definitely was kind of the dog the dog lady and then the other was kind of the cat lady of the relationship and a lot of times (laughs) one of them would sit with domino watching tv in one room and one of them would sit with the dogs um in the basement and again that kind of helped give everyone their social outlets as well as um working on some of that scent swapping 
And the last thing we did in that first intro um, consult, which, which often in our first intro consults, as you know, or so we don't have quite this many different interventions that we're starting with. But we I was there for, I think, an hour and a half. And because they already had such good safety measures set up, that's usually what I start with. But they already kind of had that covered and I didn't feel like they needed much from me there. Um And the last thing we did is we worked on some target training and other enrichment activities for checkers to give him some more stuff to do. So we tried playing um, with a a deburred toy with him, but he was nine and he was not super interested in it. Um, He's like, I'm retired. Yeah. He was like, I'm a nine-year-old neutered overweight cat. I'm not super interested. He would not in the cardio. Yeah. So they did, um, they did still continue doing a little bit of playtime with him and just, and I, I let them know, you know, it's okay if he's just watching, you guys like watching TV. Um, yeah, it's okay. Mm -hmm. And then we did a little bit of target training where we taught him to, uh, walk over and touch his nose to their fingers in exchange for a little bit of, um, the winner was the meat flavored baby food. Um, delicious. Oh my gosh. Yeah. It smells (laughs) so terrible. Oh my God. I know. Yeah. And what we, how we deliver that to avoid getting cat teeth on fingers is we, um, I'll either use a pretzel stick or a, uh, a tongue depressor to deliver a little bit of that to the kitty. Um, and checkers caught on to that super duper well. And I let them know that basically any tricks or other things that they had clicker trained copper, they could do the same with checkers. And that would be a great way to help get some social interaction. He also really enjoyed just sitting on their laps and watching TV, um, for those hour or two a day. So, um, (laughs) and that was, that was the big thing. We were really just kind of looking at how can we start getting Bella on the road towards being comfortable around checkers and how can we make all the animals feel a little bit more comfortable, um, overall. And the last thing we did discuss, um, I think I said the last thing already, but this is the real last thing, (laughs) Um, is we talked a little bit about getting Bella some pharmaceutical help because she was just so barky, jumpy, um, stressed out by like everything in life. And she did um, eventually end up on Prozac, I believe. I don't remember what the dose is. Um, and that was definitely something that was I'm trying to, yes. So, okay. So she ended up on a low dose of trazodone as an option for high stress situations. So like if she had to go to the vet, she would get that situationally. And then she would get, um, Prozac on a regular basis. And I believe that that happened pretty quickly after our first in-person consult. Um, they were really good about getting her in and their vet was, um, absolutely on board with getting her on medication pretty quickly, which is awesome because that's not always the case. Um, you know, and I was, there are definitely times where I'm wrong and the dog actually doesn't need meds and the vet is right. <laughs> yeah. I was actually talking with a colleague about this recently because I feel like I've seen so many dogs in the last year or two that I felt um, at least the, the owners should explore the the possibility of medication And, you know, I was doing a little bit of soul searching, like, am I using this as a crutch? But I think there are a lot of things that go into it. And one of them is we're, we're now rescuing dogs and placing dogs in homes that maybe a year or two ago would have been euthanized for their behavior, Um, you know, from puppy mills or hoarding situations or reservation dogs, or, you know, you name it. Um, It seems like because we're getting better and better at placing animals in homes, we're starting, you know, we've kind of like, at least here, I feel like here in Colorado, um, we've, we've got the low hanging fruit, 
um, adoptable dogs are almost never being euthanized for space, if ever. Um, and so now we're starting to bring in dogs from situations where they're grossly under socialized or neglected or abused. And we're seeing so many more behavior problems. And, you know, that that kind of trauma is physiological um, and I think is helped tremendously with um, with pharmaceutical intervention. And so, um, you know, I'm kind of of the opinion now that if it's indicated, if the dog has a high baseline anxiety, like in the home and in normal situations that other dogs can cope with, um, if a dog just can't cope, then to me, that's a strong indication that, that medication could help bring that baseline anxiety down so that they can actually, instead of responding emotionally to everything, they can kind of, you know, um, measure their responses and be a little more comfortable and actually learn. So, you know, I think, and it's, it never hurts to talk to a vet about it either. Um, mm-hmm. Exactly. So, but I know yeah, and I, I've been in a similar boat lately. I've felt like it's it seems like 80 or 90 percent of my cases, I'm saying that we should at least talk to the vet about this. And you're right. absolutely right. Most of these dogs are from, <clears throat> God, I think like 70 or 80 percent of almost all the clients. It, it's almost perfect overlap with these dogs are coming from horrible, horrible situations. And that includes Bella. Right. I believe that Bella was either a puppy mill or hoarding case dog. And I know she'd come in from out of state. So her history was pretty fuzzy. Um, but she had definitely come from a situation that was really, really rough. And, um, and yeah, the medication certainly helped. Um, her owners said it kind of just took the edge off. Um, yeah. And, and I don't think that meds are a replacement for behavior modification, mm-hmm. but they can be so helpful in just allowing the, the B-mod to work and work. Yeah, I mean, it's in just like in, just like in humans from how I right. understand it, like, Putting putting me on Prozac wouldn't necessarily fix everything that's wrong with me, but maybe Prozac plus <laughs> therapy um, could help. <laughs> um, so, yeah. Uh, and then, so just to, you know, from here on out, so I did do that initial consult in their home. And then from there on out, we actually just met over the phone for 20-minute um, phone conversations, I think about oh, every cool. other week for only two or three more more um visits and uh yeah what was your plan for ongoing treatment for them so my ongoing plan essentially included um continuing doing what they were doing so they were taking um checkers up towards um towards that baby gate and then they were doing some target training with him while they simultaneously played that look at that or engage disengage game with bella um and as I said, I had them practice that with both dogs so that they could get their mechanics down really well with Copper and then start practicing live with Bella. Um, and the target training came in really handy with Checkers because that got us... Uh, we had a way to keep Checkers up near the baby gate um, and keep him engaged, which I, is something really important because it's one thing to to get him to stay up. Um, and I think a lot of old um, suggestions for dog-cat stuff involves just like putting the cat inside a crate and just waiting until both animals stop responding. And that is so unfair. Terrifying. (laughs) Um, Yeah. So instead, you know, checkers had the option to leave, but we also were giving him something to do so that he essentially had something that kept his mind off of Bella. And the rule that I gave them was that if Bella was yelling and screaming at checkers, um, they were too close and they needed to take a break. And I asked them to do multiple really, really short training sessions per day. So just like, a minute or two um, playing that look at that game and gradually decreasing distance between the two animals. 
And then we also, during mealtimes, we started moving them closer and closer and or modulating that heavy towel to get them to have more and more visual contact during mealtimes. Um, and I think one of the other things that I wanted to bring up here is I was just listening to another podcast that talked a little bit about doing some dog cat intros. And um, one of the things that they recommended doing was if the dog stopped eating to look at the cat, take the food away and the dog doesn't eat again until another mealtime. And I would not recommend doing that. We did not do that in this case. Um, and what we did instead is instead of saying, oh, you looked at the cat too bad. Now you don't get food. And essentially they in the, in this particular podcast, they did that for multiple days until the dog, the dog had gone like multiple days without food. Um, and and that was it was a pretty severe case. Um, so I don't want to overly criticize, but I do want to say that instead what we looked at it as is if. Bella was so close to checkers that she couldn't eat. They were too close and we needed to back up. It was not that Bella wasn't hungry enough. Right. Okay. Um, and, you know, that's a good point that you made about um, not sort of like trapping the cat um, and just sort of letting them work it out on their own. Um, because one of the challenges that I've found with working with cats and dogs that are not getting along is getting the cat to hang out. <laughs> Um, especially if it's a situation where they're afraid of the dog, it can be really difficult to convince them to hang around in order to do the training at all. Um, so, you know, like if the cat runs away and hides, the training session is over. <laughs> so I love that you found a way to keep checkers comfortable and engaged and make him want to be there and hang out for the training as opposed to like, we're going to trap you and, and force you to submit to this because it doesn't make the cat feel any more comfortable about Ooh. the interaction. So. No, if anything, you might like almost best case, you're going to get learned helplessness where both the animals have just given up and stopped behaving. But that does not mean that you have fixed that underlying stress. Um, yeah. So and I will say you, checkers made it checkers made it kind of easy for me um, because like he, he was, was a really good cat. <laughs> Oh my god, he was such a he's such a cool cat. Um he just he really seemed to enjoy engaging in training. He wasn't all that nervous about Bella. So when I have worked with other cats that are not as easy as checkers, we have had to get a little bit more creative with um, you know, can we have the cat in a bedroom behind a fully closed door until the cat is comfortable? eating near the closed door with the dog on the other side. And we might have, in other cases, I've had to do more baseline work with even, as I said, like a fully closed door as opposed to that baby gate. Mm -hmm. And I wanted to ask you, so you had mentioned, you know, you heard this suggestion of um, if the dog lifts their head from the food bowl to look at the cats, take the food away, which, you know, negative punishment you know, is not, not a, not one of the quadrants I like to dwell in, but it's, it's also, you know, it has its applications. What would you, I know that there are people, professionals and non out there who might just say like, well, why don't you just correct Bella every time she tries to go after the cat? Is that a, a, um, an approach that you would recommend and why or why not? Um, certainly not in this case at all. Um, Bella was already, so stressed out and so nervous about everything in life that I think giving her any corrections would have made things a lot worse and really undermined any level of trust that she had in the few people and things that she trusted in the world. Um, it also d doesn't teach the animal what to do instead. Um, 
And the argument, especially when you're talking about a dog that is fearful towards the cat, um, just really falls apart because then we're really just teaching the dog that the if you look at the cat, painful or scary or startling stuff happens to you. And that is definitely not the lesson that we want to teach. And again, it doesn't teach the dog what to do instead. Um, I will say I find it a little bit harder to articulate why I don't use corrections in the case of something that is more akin to prey, prey drive. And I know we, we just said that we don't really think that there's some interesting research about the term prey drive, but that's the best term that I have. So do you want to tell us a little bit about why you would still argue not to use those corrections in a case where the dog might actually want to eat the cat? (laughs) Yeah. Well, I mean, for a lot of the same reasons, um, you know, we've seen that, um, and, and we have research to show that uh, physical punishment can come with a lot of associated fallout. So we can have, um, you know, the wrong association made where instead of the dog associating the aversive with their behavior, they associate it with where they are or what they're looking at <clears throat> or who's giving it if it's if it's that kind of situation. Um, and then it also doesn't teach the dog what to do in the presence of the, the trigger. So it kind of leaves the dog guessing um, as to what would be appropriate. And that can cause a lot of frustration and anxiety around the trigger, which again, is not our goal. Um, and then I would also say that, um, sorry, I had a train of thought that I was following and it kind of got derailed <laughs> by one of my dogs. Um, I would also say that, uh, you know, depending on what kind of punishment we're using, um, if it's not working within a couple of applications, then it's not working. Um, so at that point, I, what I see happen a lot is people do what they th- use what they think is punishment, and you know, from a scientific standpoint, punishment means you're decreasing a behavior, and they're not actually decreasing the behavior over time. They're just interrupting it and they're stopping it in the moment. Um, so that's not that's not really changing the behavior over time. It's just stopping it when it happens. And then you're not changing the dog's motivation to do it. You're not giving them anything else to do. You're not making them want to do it any less. You're just keeping them from completing it. Um, So that I find can be a big problem with using punishment. And there are a lot of dogs that will just blow off punishment and continue to do what it is that they want to do um, or are motivated to do. Uh, regardless of of what's happening to them, so it's right. just real tricky. Sometimes and, you you know, have, that's the scary thing too. Is I think, you know, if we're if we're using punishment or corrections and we're not seeing a change in behavior, then I think what a lot of people's next impulse to do is to reach <clears throat> for the the next Punish bigger harder. tool. Yeah. Yes. And you yeah. can end up with some really really intense um, punishers that way. Um, and the, the dog at the same time is also learning to, um, to deal with those increasingly intense punishers. So yeah, yeah, there there were, there's a lot of reasons we did not do that. (laughs) Well, and the other thing is, you know, I'm, I'm very much a proponent of the humane hierarchy, which outlines, you know, when, when and how we should consider the use of aversives. And it's always at the very, you know, it's always once everything else has been exhausted and exhausted properly. So not like, well, I tried this for a day or two and it didn't work. 
And um, <clears throat> in 18 years of training, there have been very, very few times where I have gotten to the point where I thought, okay, maybe now would be the time to introduce, introduce an aversive. But um, I don't personally think it's fair or ethical to jump to that um, before you've exhausted. You know, is the dog phys- physically healthy and sound? Is, are any medical issues being addressed? Is the environment set up for them to be successful? Have we gone through classical conditioning? Have we gone through, um, you know, positive reinforcement? Have we gone through um, negative punishment? You know, I don't, I don't think it's fair or ethical to jump to aversives if the dog hasn't had a chance, every possible chance to understand or, or to figure out other ways of dealing with the situation besides the problematic behavior. Um, so, you know, that would be another reason. Yeah, I mean, I, there's there's no need to kill a fly with a sledgehammer when, <laughs> you know, when opening the door will do. <laughs> yeah, yeah, And letting exactly. the fly out. <laughs> so. Yes. Um, yeah, I, would, I right. would definitely agree with you. I don't think <clears throat> I have yet really had anything where I have ended up using positive punishment, which is adding a punisher to um, a behavior as a trainer. Um, I have used negative punishment, which is removing something that the animal wants. And we can talk about that at some other point in time, um, especially re-demand barking. Um, right. Well, and one other quick thought mm-hmm. on, um, on prey drive. And I think this is where I was, what I was reaching for earlier that went mm-hmm. out of my head. Um, sorry, my cold fog. Um, it's all good. Is that, you know, we, we have bred dogs to, emphasize or de-emphasize certain parts of their behavior. And when we have dogs, you know, that are displaying predatory behaviors or that want to chase things or that want to grab or kill things, um, generally speaking, it's because we valued um, those behaviors for whatever reason, whether it was chase and kill vermin or I want you to chase and herd sheep or, you know, you fill in the blank. We're asking a dog or if we're punishing, we're punishing a dog for these innate behaviors that we have really installed in them and, um, and asking them or insisting that they go against what their brain essentially is telling them to do. And I don't, I don't feel that that's fair. Like I, I think yeah. that, you know, there are better ways to approach that. doesn't mean you have to let that. your dog kill your cat. <clears throat> no, 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 no. It just, just means that, that we have to come up with some other ways and trying to punish, um, the predator out of your dog's brain is very unlikely to work. Very unlikely and very difficult and I think very likely to have a lot of fallout. So that's another reason why even for predatory behavior, I would say we've got better ways to, to deal with it for sure. So Yeah. So yeah. Anyway. And so just to get back to checkers and <laughs> to Bella. circle back around. <laughs> yeah. So um, within, I think by the time I talked to them two weeks after that initial consult, um, what they said is that the animals were eating on opposite sides of a mostly uncovered baby gate. Um, they were each about three feet away, so they were six feet in between them total. Um, things were going really well there. The look at that game was also going really, really well with the baby gate. They'd been doing the scent swapping and the space swapping and all that good stuff. Um, and they were kind of asking for the next step, and they were kind of ready for that next step. And what we started doing next was we... Um, Got Bella onto a nice comfy harness and um, had her tied, I believe, to a table. And we started playing the look at that engage, disengage game while um, Checkers was actually coming upstairs. So they were actually in the same place without um, the baby gate in between them. 
and how we kept, um, well, we had Bella tied down so that she couldn't get to checkers and she was just getting a ton of food every time she looked at him. And then we did some hand targeting or the finger targeting with checkers to keep him more or less where we wanted. There were certainly times where um, he kind of did the cat thing and just kind of wandered off and lost interest in training. Um, (laughs) And what we did at that point is we just took that as a sign that training session was over and we just scooped checkers up and uh, brought him back downstairs. And, yeah, and they continued feeding the animals on opposite sides of that baby gate, um, eventually getting to a place where the animals were eating within about a foot of each other on opposite sides of the baby gate. And then just continuing to work on having um, Bella tied down and being fed and playing the look at that game while Checkers came up or moved around or moved closer to her. And we kept track of all of these different things, essentially, that Checkers could do that might be upsetting to Bella. And we made sure to only introduce one of those new things at a time. So we didn't let Checkers just come right up and start running or jumping or... um, coming really close to Bella. Um, we really at first started with checkers nice and far away from her and just pretty much standing there um, before we started adding in things like having checkers move around or um, not. I mean, as I said, he's not a young cat, so he wasn't doing a ton of sprinting around the house, but we wanted to make sure that <laughs> Bella was comfortable with him just standing still before we started adding him moving around or being closer or jumping up onto the couch Awesome. Okay. Yeah. And then um, we um, we continued doing that kind of around the house as well. So we started out in um, with Bella in the kitchen, tied to the kitchen table, and checkers at the other end of the hallway because their house was kind of T-shaped. So that was the furthest we could have them apart um, without that baby gate. And um, then we started swapping around to different spaces as they got comfortable with um, a distance that was applicable to different rooms of the house. Great. So uh, do you have any idea what the current outcome is or where they're at right now? Yeah. So um, last I heard, um, oh, and I do want to point out that we did also do some other stuff over our phone calls where we talked about some different like parallel walks and other things for Bella's um, issues with other dogs and people. Um, But that's not the focus of the podcast. So um, (laughs) last I heard from them was actually about a month ago when I reached out to them about this episode. Um, Bella was able to walk around quiet streets without too much barking and lunging at people. She certainly was not a dog that was ready to go to breweries or coffee shops or anything. Um, But um, she was comfortable in most situations. They did have a good protocol for having guests over that involved playing some treat and retreat and then putting Bella away. Um, And Bella was starting to be pretty comfortable with a couple of their frequent guests, including their adult daughter. Um, but as far as Checkers and Bella, we um, last I heard, they're pretty much um, cohabitating really, really nicely. Um, they got to a point where they could have Bella tied to the kitchen table, and she was pretty much just only there for the treats. She really didn't care about Checkers. And at that point, <laughs> we let Bella um, start. We started walking that Bella a little bit, I think. And then we started letting Bella just drag the leash Um, So we did introduce having Bella free to move before we fully um, unclipped her. And even then, we still had her dragging the leash for a little while. And again, last I heard, they were pretty much cohabitating really, really nicely. Um, 
And Bella still would startle and woof at checkers occasionally if um, it seemed like it was mostly like low light or if checkers um, jumped down off of the couch near her um, and kind of spooked her when she was on the ground. Um, And then there would be a couple woofs. But other than that, it sounded like things actually were as good as you could really hope for a case like this. The the animals were all getting along really quite well. That's awesome. <laughs> yeah, it's nice when it works out like that. Um, yeah, yeah, for sure. And it seems like within a pretty reasonable time frame too, which I know yeah. sometimes those desensitization and sort of systematic approaches can take a while, but the dog Yeah, I think this ultimately took, you know, maybe <laughs> three or four months. Yeah, that's not um, bad at and all. And they, they, were, they were very yeah. dedicated. Um, and we went really slow. Um, and that's yeah. the big thing that we always want to emphasize in cases like this <clears throat> is it's better to go too slow and basically end up with a dog that is getting a lot of treats <laughs> too for something comfortable. that's really easy. <laughs> yeah. Versus especially when we're talking about a situation that could be potentially dangerous for one or both of the animals. Um, it's just not worth pushing it. And, um, you know, one of the things that made this case relatively easy was that Checkers was not scared of Bella, but if we had pushed too far too fast and Bella had potentially gotten too close to him or actually really gone after him, um, we absolutely could have ended up in a situation where Checkers was scared of Bella and that would have definitely made things worse. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Well, and, you know, with the the animals always dictate the pace. Like you can't you can't push them faster than than they're comfortable with going or else you risk like you said uh, all sorts of fallout that can really set you back so well great thank you for sharing all of that with us it's um really helpful to to sort of hear what your approach was and and you know how you how you treated that and how it ended up so uh, i think that'll wrap us up for the day but before we go We want to make sure that uh, our listeners are going to um, know to subscribe to Canine Conversations wherever you get your podcasts, whether it's um, iTunes or Spotify or wherever. Rating and reviewing the podcast also helps other people find us and helps keep us motivated. A little positive reinforcement. Uh, You can find episode notes and bonus materials at canineconvos.com. I'm Ursa Acri. I'm the co-owner of Canis Major Dog Training in Denver, Colorado. You can find us online at canismajortraining.com or on Facebook or Instagram, Canis Major Training. You can also find us training dogs and training people at our new uh, Training and Behavior Center at 601 Bryant Street in Denver. Uh, Kayla, would you like to let us know where to find you? Absolutely. So as we said, I'm Kayla Fratt and I own Journey Dog Training. I blog and um, work at journeydogtraining.com, and I actually work exclusively remotely at this point, so all of my clients and I work together either via video chat or phone call or um, email text support. Um, So again, that's journeydogtraining.com. You guys can also find me talking about dog behavior more on YouTube or Facebook, also just under Journey Dog Training. Thanks so much for listening. Our theme music is called Funny Song and it's provided royalty-free from bensound.com. Our audio is mixed and edited by James Eady at beheard.org.uk. Our logo is from Walker Hooper, who's on Instagram with the ID at walkers underscore username.